Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics, but this is also Talking Economics because we are recording this live at the Talking Economics Festival in Bristol in front of an audience. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading review of culture and ideas. And the LRB is returning to first principles with their latest exclusive offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12 and they'll also send you one of their surprisingly famous tote bags, acclaimed by the likes of New York Magazine and Vice. Just use the URL mylrb.co.uk slash talkingbag. That's mylrb.co.uk slash talkingbag. Helen Thompson and I are joined by Ed Conway, economics editor at Sky News, prolific newspaper columnist on all sorts of questions. And we're going to try and cover quite a lot of ground here. We want to get, if we can, from supply chains to the metaverse. We'll see how far we get. Uh, And we'll take in inflation and other things along the way, the fate of globalization, the future of the world. Uh, Ed, let's start with supply chains. I guess we should just try and explain what we think is going on at the moment. It's routinely described as a crisis, the supply chain crisis, but it's sometimes explained as a short-term effect of some fairly recent and easily identified accidents, and sometimes as a symptom of something much deeper that we're learning about the global economy and the way that it works. Which of those two explanations do you favour, or how would you rank them? Right at the start, certainly at Sky News and a lot of places, we had to come up with a kind of term for what we're going through. And supply crisis was, was, was felt like the obvious thing at the time because it's supply chains are, are at strain right now. But you know, in a way, you might be better off calling it demand crisis. I mean, what we're going through right now is a massive uptick in global economic growth. The global economic machine, you know, if you consider it that way in very simplified terms, is, is not very used to six percent plus growth in developed economies you know it's certainly in the uk we just haven't seen that for, for for many decades and given that amount of demand for materials it would be odd if you weren't seeing certain areas where you were seeing problems but i think the reality is that there's a short-term cyclical thing going on right now and that may kind of go away after a while but there are longer term issues here longer term issues in the way that a lot of these supply chains work semiconductors is a really good example but you could take it for like chemicals as well you know there were problems with the chemicals uh, supply chain for 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 many years there have been shortages of truck drivers not just in this country in the uk but in the us for years they've had shortages of truck drivers and again that has just come to the fore right now and then on top of that you've got kind of some big changes that are happening to the way that we consume goods and you know people are ordering more stuff to home you're seeing a change in the distribution of goods around um, the world and our appetite for technology is increasing with every year that goes by and as that happens you need more semiconductors even leaving aside whether you suddenly need a new computer for your you know your home office because you're working from home so all of those things kind of play into to the fact that we are seeing a kind of moment right now where f- for the first time in a long time we are concentrating on the nature of supply chains but there has been a kind of a brewing crisis for a while and i think to some extent this shift that we're more reliant on these materials the issue is that for the past kind of i don't know two three decades we have i think increasingly 
forgotten to pay attention to how these things actually fit together. In, in the same way that, you know, in the financial crisis, there was a disconnection between the lender and, and the borrower and you, you had kind of loans being packaged up and subprime. It's a similar thing with, with supply chains. You're seeing kind of disassociation between kind of end consumer and, and product, but also along that chain. So if you talk to many people within certain chains, whether it's for, for cars or for, for, for many other things, the understanding of what's happening one or two chains down is, I think, slightly less than it's ever been before. Partly that's because those chains are more complex, and there are many reasons for that, which we can get into. But partly, I think it's just because so far it's worked, and the assumption was that markets were just going to take care of it, and the price function would work. And here we are in a moment where the price function hasn't worked, and the question is whether it's like 2008 all over again, and this is a great realisation that just-in-time supply chains aren't necessarily quite as effective as we thought they were, or whether it's just a kind of a one-off flash in the pan and a series of unfortunate events that means gas bills and everything else is expensive for a while. I think probably it's slightly more the former than the latter, but it's not, you know, I don't see it as 2008 style, but our consciousness of how the world fits together and how these things are at the basis of almost everything that comprises value in the economy, that we need a wake-up call on that. One of the explanations is just in time supply chains aren't set up for this kind of disruption, both the shrinking of the economy and now the rapid growth. I mean, it's a bit like what happened before the financial crisis. There was an assumption that things could carry on as they were. And then something happens that suggests that this isn't an eternal state of things. Events intervene. And suddenly you see that the way that this is organized is is not at all resilient to shocks. Is that what's going on? I think that's partly true. I mean, I, what I would say here is is that if you look before the, the pandemic hit, supply chains had already been politicised and just in time, supply chains in particular, that was part of the, the Brexit debate. It was one of the reasons why people said it would be so difficult for the United Kingdom to leave the single market because of just in time production and not people who are on the Remain side or some people on the Remain side saying to, to leave is, look, you don't really understand how trade works. Um, now that, that this is a, this is going to be a massive problem. And simultaneously, there was the fact that the Trump administration's trade war with China had effectively geopolitically charged supply chains going in and out of China, including for um, various American digital companies, like say a company like Apple. And then these companies were having to think about geopolitical risks around supply chains that they hadn't had to before. So I think the world was already changing, or at least that supply chains had become politicised before the pandemic. I think if you then look at the beginning of the pandemic, the striking thing in a way is is that there isn't really a supply crisis. I think there were lots of people, I think I would include myself in this, who were quite nervous at the beginning about how food supply chains were going to, to stand up to what happened. But actually, in this country at least, they stood up like remarkably well. It's, it's only actually at some point when the recovery gets going that we, we move into this, we now think of it. And I think it is a genuine supply chain uh, crisis. I think that there's probably three things going on. The first of them is essentially a shipping problem that began in China. And I think that this is important to understand because China is essentially still running a zero COVID policy. So they're quite willing to shut down activity, including at their ports. And that slows down the distribution of everything, given how much component manufacturing takes place in China. Then there's this, what's been going on in labor markets in European countries, where you basically have people uh, in certain sectors, including one of them seems to be haulage, leaving their jobs. 
Um, they're partly able to because in the United States, the stimulus checks that households got allowed people more um, discretion, discretionary income than they'd had greater propensity, greater opportunity to save. People were in a position to change their lives around. And now we can see that there really are labour market shortages in areas where there haven't been before. And if you put those two things together, you've got a shipping problem coming out of China's ports and you've got people not wanting to do jobs in US ports, including driving the cargo out of them, then you've got a, a major problem. And I think if you look at the language that um, the Biden administration has been using about this infrastructure bill, what's now an act legislation that has been that, the, that Biden's just signed into law, it's all about this will address a supply chain crisis. This has become a big political question in the US. But I think the other thing, and this is where it gets complicated, is was what happened in the economic crisis at the beginning of the pandemic, was it a supply shock or was it a demand shock? I think it was both. What we've now seen, though, is it's also a demand shock in terms of the things that we want to spend money on are changing. So people are less willing to spend money on services than they were because they don't necessarily want to go and do things in person. They want to spend more money on goods. So you've got the demand for goods has gone up at a time when the supply has become more difficult. And then also, because so much money has been thrown at us all by central banks in one way or another, or many of us anyway, in one way or, or um, another, actually, the level of demand at a time when supply was difficult is actually quite high. Uh, and so then you've got the problem of that demand is high in relation to supply. So I think you've got actually really multiple things going on at the same time. It's worth saying, I mean, you know, not long ago, if we were talking about you know, do you want to be a truck driver as a job prospect? Well, what was the big kind of zeitgeisty thing we were talking about kind of three, four years ago? It was AI and it was self-driving trucks. And, uh, you know, everyone said, you know, no self-respecting person would become a truck driver right now. And that's basically what's happened. A very lot of young people, very smartly, are thinking, well, that doesn't look like a job occupation where I've got many long-term prospects. So I'm not going to do that. And now we're kind of hitting into that. I, too, was struck by the absence of a supply shock during the pandemic itself. Because if you think about what you know, the economy was being asked to do, it was pivoting to a situation where so much of what it previously had been distributed through shops and so on was suddenly being distributed via you know, Amazon or whoever it was. And the, yeah, it is kind of remarkable that that happened without any kind of ostensible shortage. I mean, we had loo roll perhaps was, was short for a little bit, but that was that a real shortage, I don't really know. And so I suppose you could make it, you know, you could kind of ask the question as to whether, first of all, the extent to which we rely on these supply chains is, ex you know, it's inordinate, it's massive. Is it just that there are certain pinch points where it's, it's shown up kind of much more than in other places? And you can see why maybe that might be the case with semiconductors, because it's such a kind of capital intensive, such a, it takes so long to build a semiconductor to make a, a silicon chip, and then it takes even longer to make the silicon wafer that it's going to go on. And that is not an easy supply chain to just whip into action. The problem though is that by failing to kind of think about this in an intelligent way, and I don't think within policy circles there's that much deep thought about it, you hear politicians say, well, yeah, we need to relocate the semiconductor supply chain to America. That's impossible. It will never happen. If you look at the kind of complexity of the way that works, It'll never happen, you know, if we want to continue having chips that are going to be moderately inexpensive and good. Because most of the companies producing the various different components or machine tools that go into the production of semiconductors, and this is just at the top end of the supply chain, are from around the world. They're from all over the place. I mean, people talk about TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. You know, they're seen as the kind of 
the the key kind of nexus for where the supply kind of shortage is not entirely true because they primarily are making kind of the very fast stuff and that's there's less of a shortage there but I, anyway if china wanted to, to to win at semiconductors could it just take over taiwan well i mean yes it would get tsmc but you wouldn't get this enormous constellation of companies that provide machines that allow TSMC to make the chips, or you wouldn't get the companies that provide the chemicals, which allow them to kind of do all of the work on the chips. And a lot of that is global. And the idea of putting that, locating that in one place and having an efficient supply chain is madness. It's absolutely impossible for any, you know, if you've looked at it. And my impression is that it's the same for the majority of supply chains, but even slightly less complex things. And it's just that's the nature of the globalized world. And the problem is, I think that because we've been so focused on aggregate measures of, of you know, economic growth and GDP and inflation, all of which have their place, it's been easy not to focus on the structure of the economy, which, which is incredibly complex. But it's also now we're learning it's, it's, there are possible reasons that it can go wrong. And again, the analogy with the financial crisis, I don't want to imply that we're heading for some similar crisis because I don't think we are. But the analogy there is one of the things that taught us is we need to understand more about the linkages between different financial institutions. And gradually over the last kind of 10 years or so, central banks and other international institutions have built those maps of, of linkages. Whether this helps prevent another financial crisis, we'll have to wait and see. But nonetheless, they start to build those maps. We don't really have anything like that anything like that when it comes to the way that the global economy, the built economy, the material economy actually fits together. And I find that kind of unsettling. And the upshot of that, what's the upshot? First of all, you get lazy comments like we're going to relocate the entire silicon supply chain to one country, impossible. Second of all, you get governments completely flabbergasted and surprised by the fact that suddenly you're going to run out of carbon dioxide because gas prices are so high and then a fertilizer plant turns out you've only got two fertilizer plants doing kind of ammonia production in the UK and then suddenly you've got no CO2 because that was a big byproduct of it that came as a complete surprise to people at the very heart of government and were we a little bit more curious about this perhaps we might not run into quite so many of these these kind of surprises in the future I think part of the story about how we got here this great essay, I Pencil, Leonard Reed, 1950s, about it's telling the story. It's just telling the story as if the pencil is, is the person explaining their, their life story. And they tell the story about, you know, the, the wood came from cedar forests, you know, in, I can't remember, in America. The lead came from here, so, so on and so forth. What's, what's amazing about that story is you learn that in something so simple, you have this enormous supply chain that straddles the globe. One of the most amazing things about this is, well, the complexity of it. The other amazing thing is that no one is designing this there's no there's the invisible hand but there's just lot, millions of people around the world taking this decision and why was he making that point in particular because you know this was the era of central planning of trying to make that argument and this turned out to be one of Milton Friedman's favorite essays because it made that point really powerfully even a pencil is incredibly difficult and no single person knows how to do that but central planning obviously kind of had its comeuppance we now live in a world where most people agree that wasn't a particularly good idea. In this, at the same time, we've kind of forgotten the second lesson there, which is that let's dwell and be curious about the nature of these supply chains and think more about it. And instead, we've disassociated ourselves with them. No one understands the possible pieces that would go into making a semiconductor, and it's not utterly impossible. So I want to come on in a second to the question of inflation and what Helen said about the money that's being thrown at us. But, and I definitely don't want to make this about Brexit, but as Helen suggested, there was an argument 
before the Brexit referendum, which relates to what we're talking about here. In a world of incredible complexity and interdependence, there are two ways the politics of this can go, and you were sceptical about one of these. One of which is that the way to be more resilient and secure is to be less dependent on these supply chains and have as much as possible relocated locally. The other argument is that you have to accept it as a fact that we are dependent. And for that reason, we need to strengthen international institutions. We need to strengthen the way in which you can see the, the whole thing. And this feels like, I mean, the Brexit didn't resolve that question, not least because some of the scaremongering didn't happen. But this feels like a turbocharged version of the same argument with the possibility that there might be more resolution. Helen's looking at me skeptically. No, I'm not looking at you skeptically. <laughs> I just think that it's a question of, it's fundamentally a question about China. That's because China's at the center of the way in which the, the global economy has worked since the, for the last um, 20 years. And the, the, the political tensions around supply chains before the pandemic, although Brexit, as you said, there was a version of it going on, but the really big question was about um, China. Uh, and I think the question is, uh, and this is where I think I slightly disagree with you, Ed, and, uh, in the sense of thinking that I, I don't think the global is a given any longer. I think that the, the politicians, and particularly in the United States and China, will push very hard against that idea because they are in strategic rivalry with each other. And it is a strategic rivalry in part to control the supply chains about what they think of as the future industries and, and, and green energy, ensuing green energy. Um, manufacturing. So I think that you, it's more likely you'll see in the big picture sense is sort of like not quite regional supply chains, but ones that are under different powers with different power being trying to be trying to be at the center of it. And if you look at the way in which China's or well, the language around China's economic policy has changed during the, the 18 months or so of the pandemic, the, the language of like dual circulation, it is essentially about making China less dependent upon the rest of the world. But just as crucially, it's about trying to make other parts of the world dependent upon China and seeing as that's to China's advantage and the United States isn't going to sit there and accept that that's the way it's going to go so and I think the fact that on the semiconductor issue that Taiwan's place in it it just does just make it geopolitically charged as it happens we've been talking to ab about the, the the Taiwan issue in, a, in another podcast um, episode and it was quite scary the conversation was <laughs> I mean it does make Brexit look like a storm in a teacup but then if that's the case though Helen how, how do they achieve that that's I suppose that's what I'm curious about it's the n degree of kind of to which we're intertwined is so deep and runs uh, to so many links in all of these supply chains that I uh, and the extent I would say of the slightly revealed ignorance amongst many politicians in some of the comments they make about this makes me slightly skeptical that when it comes to the crunch of actually okay if you're going to do this you're not necessarily going to have the panoply of stuff you actually quite rely on and your consumers quite rely on whether it's cheap computers or whatever it is then I, I just wonder whether they've reckoned with how difficult it would be to dismantle these but, things but could I just ask when you say they you're talking presumably about western democratic politicians or do you think you see the same ignorance among Chinese political leaders or do we even know well I think I think the Chinese, Chinese and the Taiwanese and to some extent the South Koreans have thought about this more than, than most European or 
you know, Anglo-American politicians, in part just because of the nature of industrial strategy, I think, has been different and genuinely more strategic in those, those countries, and they're strategic about minerals, they're strategic about other things. But China is enormously reliant on, on many parts of the West as well, partly for our demand, because we like buying stuff from China, and the last... 20, 30 years has basically been fueled by Chinese growth and Chinese coal. I mean, that's the other thing, you know, much under-discussed, but basically that Chinese growth, which in turn has fueled the cheap consumption that we rely on, has been fueled by coal and a, ma and a massive amount of burning of, of thermal coal in China. But China's also reliant on, on you know, places like Australia for, for coal, and if not Australia, other countries as well. And so the web of... of the extent to which we rely on each other, whether it's for raw materials or whether it's for demand. I don't see it being any less now than it was before Trump, for instance, or before Brexit. And then you look at, I mean, the other side of this is the financial intertwined, you know, uh, kind of interrelationships. Back at, you know, the time when everyone was saying it was the end of globalization because of Trump and because of Brexit and so on, the degree of interconnectedness and the degree of capital flows was pretty high. Now it's, I think, even higher. I mean, COVID has, has had an impact on it, but the undergirding, the financial undergirding that finances this globalized world, yes, there's the, the rhetoric, but looking at the evidence, it's not like it has become any less interconnected. So I suppose that's my skepticism is, while there is definitely kind of some very powerful language at the moment, what I wonder is when that actually turns the, the pendulum and we see reshoring on a, on a mass scale I entirely agree with you that the, the, the politicians in, in Western countries don't understand this very well. Though I noticed that Joe Biden was trying to tell American citizens that it was them who didn't understand it very well rather than him um, the other day or the, last week. But I think that this is where the, I mean, leaving, leaving aside the Taiwan question, which I think really is important, is, is the shipping issue is really part of that because that's the, the part of this is just like being that was taken for granted by the companies themselves. Just an assumption that transportation was a given, it wasn't particularly an expensive cost for them. But energy, obviously, is an important part of transportation. Energy costs have been going up. That means that shipping costs have been going up at the very same time in which shipping has become really difficult, both because of what's gone on in China, but what's been going on on the West Coast, um, US ports, particularly at Los Angeles. And, and, and that, I think, will focus businesses' minds as well as the politicians' minds because if you once you can't take that as a given any longer and i think that so long as china wants to run a, a zero covid policy and china remains in the position in which it is in the world economy this isn't going away it would go away to some extent i think if china were to change tack on covid but so long as that is their position then i think that the 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 shipping infrastructure if you like or the shipping system as part of the international supply chain setup is a significant risk i was going to say because you know that there's the same issue to some extent with the US, with their ports as there is with their railway system, which is that it's, it's, it's historically terribly underinvested, and you could see a way of just putting a lot of investment into Long Beach and all of these different ports. But your, your point is there is something far more structural going on that's going to last for years. I think that it's quite difficult to say how long any of these things are going to last, not least because it's proven, I think, quite difficult to make predictions about the economic shape that the recovery from the pandemic would take place. 
I mean, last summer, and I certainly was in this camp last summer, I thought that there was a much more serious risk of unemployment than there has turned out to be. I think there was an explanation uh, in that the longer that things didn't go back to normal, the more people that were willing to simply say, actually, I don't want to carry on working in the not very well paid job that I've been doing and maybe I can change my life around. I think that it was easier to see that energy inflation was coming than it was to see that the labour market inflation was coming. I think most people who've tried to think about this have been taken about surprise by that so I think what is still quite difficult to think about is how all these different things interact with each other and then which gets us to I think where you want to go next anyway David is is how the how the central banks are actually going to respond to what look like multiple inflationary pressures. I am going to go there, but I have one more thing on this because, Ed, the way you put it, I mean, to describe how the global economy works, which is that Chinese growth is driven by Western demand for cheap goods, but that itself is reliant on coal, which fuels the Chinese economy. And if you see that triangle, again, you might say, well, that's the world we live in. It's very, very hard to disentangle it. But of course, there's a very strong incentive to disentangle it. I mean, if that's the world we live in and we're stuck with it for 20 or 30 years, we're in a lot of trouble. And there are reasons to be politically sceptical about how that can be. Who's going to give here? Is is Western demand going to go? Is Chinese growth going to go? Is Chinese dependence on coal going to go? But presumably, at some point in the next decade or two, something's got to give. What makes it quite uncomfortable is, you know, I think a lot of people have looked at the statistics on on emissions and seeing how much of it comes from China, which is to say an awful lot at the moment, by far and away the biggest, comfortably the biggest, and thought, well, this is all pointless to the, unless we get them to do something about it. But the them is not them. You know, they are making goods clearly for their own market, but also they are producing goods and they have been producing goods that we are then consuming. And a lot of that, those emissions are then embedded in the goods that come over to, uh, to our countries. And, and, and the degree to which they are embedded, is, I, I think, is far greater than most people presume. I mean, if you take like a solar panel, a solar panel, most people assume that that's primarily green. Well, what do you need to take? I know about, so I'm, I'm in the middle of writing a book about materials and, and so I spent a long time looking at this supply chain, same as semiconductors, solar panels, very similar. What do you need if you're gonna take quartzite, which is the main feedstock for solar panels and semiconductors, that's where your silicon comes from. If you wanna turn that into silicon metal, what do you need? you need coking coal. So you need coking coal and wood chips and you put that that quartzite into a big furnace, you burn it at 1,500 degrees C and you get silicon metal. And then you need to turn that silicon metal into something called polysilicon. And that involves another process that takes it to about 1,800 degrees. And then you need to turn it into a silicon wafer, which involves another process which takes it to about 1,300 degrees and you turn it into a perfect crystal. And then you send it to the semiconductor manufacturer or the solar panel manufacturer. And that process all along the way, especially for solar panels, is dominated by China. And that process all along the way, up until quite recently at least, has been dominated in terms of the energy needed for it by coal. And so our solar panels are cheaper now, partly, not entirely, there's technological progress, yes, but they are partly more cheap now because of coal, because cheap coal has gone into their production. And so have our semiconductors, so have our smartphones that we like to tweet that we're really against China, you know, and Chinese kind of production, and we're, we're really kind of right on. Coal is at the basis of all of this, like it or not, that's the problem. And that's why, you know, this is going to be a very difficult issue to try to disentangle ourselves from in the next few years. And by the way, 
all of those processes that lead to the production of the most advanced technology in the world right now, most of those production methods date back about a century and they have never been updated. It's like steel production. We, we still make semiconductors, we make solar panels with the same kind of processes that we use to make steel in electric arc furnaces. And I think that, <laughs> I think that there's too few people who really understand the naughtiness of this. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying there's any great answer to this. But I'm saying that, that when we just kind of say, well, look, China, you need to do more on this. That's quite a lazy response to something which we are deeply entangled in ourselves and are slightly unaware of the extent to which the new, brilliant, green-looking goods we're buying are actually a part of it. Hello, it's Catherine Carr here, Talking Politics producer turned Christmas elf, here to tell you that we are opening up the Talking Politics shop just in time for Christmas. We have tote bags and keep cups. The bags are £10, the cups are 12 you pay for postage on top. We're planning to do a big post out on the 11th of December in time to get to anywhere in the UK and Europe in time for Christmas, we hope. To order yours, go to talkingpoliticspodcast.com and follow the links to the shop. That's talkingpoliticspodcast.com. Happy Christmas. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So let's do inflation. <laughs> Helen, it's a similar story that there are many explanations that say this is a short-term and entirely predictable effect of what's happened to the global economy in the last 18 months. And then there are many people, including many Republicans in the United States, who have been saying for the past 10 plus years, inflation's just around the corner. And then when it arrives, they say, told you so, there's something terrible about to burst upon us. But one of the fundamental questions here is that if central banks want to do something about inflation, do they have the wherewithal to do it? And that's a political question as much as an economic question, because we've been living in a low inflation world. We've been living in a world that's awash with money. And we don't really know, I think, you tell me if I'm wrong, we don't really know how people would respond to an attempt to get inflation under control, because most people don't have it in their recent memory. It's a different world in which if this is a long term problem, or even a medium term problem, to try and apply the familiar toolkit, do they have, how much discretion do you think central banks have at the moment for this question? I think the answer is, is not very much because of the amount of debt that there, there is in the world. I mean, I think that the, the ceiling which they could, would reach for raising interest rates would be reached quite rapidly. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to put a figure on it, but I, I, I struggle to see, certainly 3%, I think would be, 3% interest rates, I mean by that would be pretty difficult. I, th I think it might even be lower than that. More. Which is an extraordinary thought when you think of yeah. the world 30 years ago. 5% used to be the kind of yeah. nor the norm yeah. in inverted commas. You think commas. of that when they... Um, and, and it isn't just about the, the difficulty that it would cause household and corporate debtors. It's the, the difficulties 
that they, in terms of the way in which financial markets and share markets in particular would respond to that kind of monetary tightening because the financial markets, the share markets in particular, have become addicted to, I mean, pretty systematically addicted to the kind of monetary policy that's been served up since 2008 by the Federal Reserve in particular. I think in terms of the the wage inflation aspects of it, I suspect that that might be more uh, more transitory. Not that in, in this sense is, is that I think that an adjustment is taking place in Western economies anyway, in which the certain kinds of labour can claim a greater share of what's going on than has previously been the case. And that if you think of the share that Labour's been taking of income has been going down in most Western democracies since like the 70s. And I think we're seeing some rebalancing. And it, it's not across the board because it's not people who are going to be working in the public sector who are going to be benefit from that, but certain kinds of labour of the kind that had sort of in some sense been seen as unimportant, like truck drivers, they are, they are going to be, they are be already uh, being paid more and I think that that will be a, a permanent adjustment upwards in wage costs in certain areas but that doesn't once it's played out if it stops it doesn't have to as long as it plateaus it doesn't have to keep being it won't ca- keep on being inflationary I think the thing that's harder is the energy inflation side of it because actually central banks can't actually do anything with monetary policy really about energy inflation and they're usually when they talk about wanting to do something they're usually talking about trying to stop the secondary consequences of it so basically trying to stop workers saying or people saying I need a pay rise we need a pay rise because our energy bills gone up that's what they can think that they can do something about whether they even can on that another matter but they can't do anything about the energy markets themselves I mean I think what's more likely to happen there is is particularly where oil's concerned high oil prices will destroy high oil prices. So in the end, it will stop being inflationary because high oil prices will destroy demand. And I think what we're seeing is that already at levels of oil prices that are only in the maximum, I think, that's been reached so far is around the $85 a barrel. And this is nothing really compared to what they've been at various historical peaks before. In in, uh, the middle of um, 2008, before they crashed, they were $150 a barrel. Um, so this is actually a really quite tame level in some respects to be causing this much difficulty, which is bad news for the sense of like, well, the world economy can't cope with very high oil prices, but it's good news in the fact it will, in the fact that the world economy can't, and there will be less growth and means there'll be less inflation. So I think that we'll be stuck into the the stasis that we were there in the pre-pandemic um, years, but. Acuter. The political stakes are pretty high. I mean, the American Republican Party's simultaneous horror and glee at what inflation might do to Biden's prospects, which aren't great anyway. And if, as Helen says, it's you know, the policy constraints are real here. And, and if you know the answer to this is waiting for high oil prices to kill demand to bring oil prices down, that's not a great outlet. If you say to Biden, that's how it's going to play out. He's not going to be thrilled. Funny enough, I did an interview with uh, with Andrew Bailey a couple a couple of weeks ago, and, and it was kind of he made exactly the point that Helen did, which is that you know we we can't do anything to bring your your gas bills down. We can't do anything to ensure that the wind turbines are blowing in the North Sea or whatever kind of cause it is. And so I think that they they feel slightly trapped. But I mean, they nor can they nor can they just sit with their you know sit on their hands as inflation is 
more than double their target and it's going to be even higher. But, you know, we've lived in this era for, what, I don't know, 30 years where, you know, you've had histrionics definitely of American presidents occasionally, but it's been quite a long time since central banks have killed an economy, you know, have put it into recession or have uh, ruined the prospects of a president to get elected, which was what, you know, the first George Bush kind of thought about, about Alan Greenspan. And so going back into that world and in the UK, remember, you know, this is in a sense, you know, if we do have an inflationary spike, this could be one of the one of the first real tests of, of independence, you know, kind of post-1997 independence, which which up until now, you haven't really had a kind of a genuine clash, I think, between, you know, in terms of monetary policy and, and the counteraction of, of government. So that that's interesting, <laughs> interesting in, in, in italics, because I don't know. I mean, I feel like I don't know, given that quantitative easing has, has to some extent complicated matters by putting a lot of government debt into, into central banks. And given that as a result of that, they have more kind of levers that could, they could pull, which could be difficult for governments. I, I think that's quite unnerving. And I mean, Helen, I think I know your answer to this, but there are presumably no historical parallels here precisely because traditional means for dealing with this problem aren't available. And what we've lived through, particularly since 2008, is relatively speaking unprecedented. So we just don't know where the limits are, do we? I mean, when you say 3%, you're guessing, right? But we can't draw on anything except an instinctive feeling for what markets or even voters will put up with. And voters don't have memories of much going back before 2008. I should say as well, I, I think 3% is really on the optimistic side. <laughs> so and that means it is a different yeah. world. Isn't it? Uh, it is. I mean, the only thing I would say, you could go back to like 2011, which I think is interesting, where, you, you know, you were three years past the crash. You had oil prices go surging above $100 a barrel, and they actually stayed there for the best part of three years. It's the longest period of sustained oil prices has actually ever been. And British inflation actually got pretty bad then. It went above, it went above 5%. Um, and American, I can't remember the exact figure for the American inflation, but it was, wo- it was well above 2% what the Fed would be uh, expecting. And both the Federal Reserve Board and the Bank of England let it go. Interestingly, the European Central Bank didn't let it go. And that's when the Eurozone crisis took its deeper, darker turn uh, in 2011 with lots of problems and and one of the first things that Draghi did when Mario Draghi did when he came in was to stop that and and then in that respect that they were lucky because actually although oil prices remained high for three years the longest as I say they've ever been they also plateaued so they stopped actually being inflationary the difference now is that we're not only in QE world we're in like QE infinity world you know we're in what happened in terms of the what the central banks did in March 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, and the, the Federal Reserve Board effectively acting as a backer of last resort of any asset going. Uh, and that encouraged American corporations with access to, 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 to debt to, to really pile on even more debt than they, than, than they already had. So that strange world that we lived in between 2008 though we're not in Kansas, as I used to say about it. Um, we're, we're now where, where are we not now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're not on planet Earth anymore. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, to go back to, to kind of, you know, link the two, you know, the supply chain thing, I mean, are, are there historical analogies for that, you know, wartime perhaps in the, the First World War, the, 
governments club together and set up the wheat executives so that they could have a strategic plan over where they were going to get food from the, the kind of allied governments. You know, in, in the wake of, in the kind of Cold War period, the US had a strategic reserve of metals and certain critical minerals, which it, which it al allowed to basically kind of dwindle away after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So things like that, I, I, who knows, we could see a, more of that in the future. So before we open it up to uh, questions from the audience, the metaverse question, which isn't actually a metaverse question, but it's the opposite in a way, because so we've been talking about a world in which the key things seem to be coal and oil and silicon and goods rather than services. It's an you know, it's we still live in a material world. And the rhetoric of the metaverse is also that there is coming quite soon something which is very, very different. Um, it will all be fueled by these materials. I mean, it's your point in a way, Ed, that the rhetoric of the, you know, the, the new tech utopias completely ignore the extent to which all of this is dependent, as dependent as it's ever been. I mean, if these are 100-year-old systems and methods for manufacturing forms of material that have been around for a lot longer than that, all of the fancy stuff is built on something which, if it fails, it all fails. Yes, well, that's my answer. I mean, yes. it's, 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 it's <laughs> that, but that's, that's the point, the entire metaverse, what's it built on? It's built on an infrastructure and clearly there is it's not there built on clever ideas coming out of Silicon Valley. Well, it is. It, I mean, there are ideas, but, but those ideas are reliant upon an infrastructure to, to, to turn them into a reality. And clearly the ideas have, have value and we append a lot of value. If you look at the kind of traditional measures of, of, of value that we're focused on at the moment on ideas. What we're not very good at kind of measuring in, in our statistics or a lot of our conceptions is dependency. And there's a kind of enormous dependency of the metaverse and everything else, frankly, on the, the material world, as you might call it. And, and so if you, don't, if you don't have that, you're, you're screwed. <laughs> and so as a result, that, that, that seems to me to matter. I think it's true that absolutely the, the, the meta world, the meta idea, is in, it needs an, everything needs an energy source. And that's a material question. There just isn't any escape from that. But what I think is interesting is the fact that the meta world uh, and this whole Facebook thing around it and the, the general way in which the, the tech billionaires have responded to really, I think the last 18 months of the pandemic is to sort of go higher and higher, whether it's into the, you know, the metasphere, whether it's into space, quite literally. Uh, I'm or trying to Texas yeah, <laughs> or escape the material. So I, I think that it's not in some sense a coincidence that as the material b becomes more important, precisely because we can see its propensity to crisis at this moment in time, that the reaction to that is to try to escape into the meta or the digital world. Because I think that as well, if you think during the, the first part of the pandemic, at least a lot of the talk about what the economic future was going to be post pandemic was about digitalization and basically more and more becoming digital. And that's partly is happening. And so I think that in a world in which supply and physical constraints come to the fore, that actually we will see more of the, the meta world, even though the idea that it can escape from the material is an illusion. And in a way, that's the biggest sort of supply chain challenge of all, that the dreams of escape are dependent on the thing that you're trying to escape from. I'd say. Right, on that cheery note. <laughs> uh, okay, we've got a few questions. Uh, if we start here. Um, given the huge increase in the price of gas, 
which is central to the production of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, and also which is central to the production of wheat. Do the panel believe we're going to have a global supply shock in terms of food supply, wheat, and potentially in instability in terms of political systems where people are potentially starving? Well, I think we will have political instability if people are starving. The question is, will people be starving? So on ammonia, obviously the US is in a different place to us, and the US, both because they, they have fracking, have had a more secure supply of, of, of gas, and in turn, I don't know, you know, the ammonia price, the global, whatever global measures there are, have certainly gone up a lot, but they haven't gone up by quite so much. Um, as for the, the impact on food production, I don't know, you guys might have a better sense. Well, there's already, a, food prices have already been um, rising quite significantly in, in some respects, and there's a, a long-standing relationship between energy prices and food prices because energy is so central to every aspect of like food production and food distribution. I think you can actually see already some of this playing out. Again, interestingly, in parts of the world, I'm thinking particularly of Lebanon before the, the pandemic actually started, uh, where you quickly went from like electricity crisis to high food prices to considerable political instability. I think it's part of what's been going on in Iraq for the for again starting from before the pandemic. And it's not, I think, coincidence that you could see it in the Middle East, because if you go back to two thousand and eleven was talking about in a different context of its impact on Western monetary policy, that big spike in oil prices in 2011 is part of the Arab Spring story. And that's a, and the, connecting, the thing that connects it is food prices again. So I think, yeah, very much it is the case that energy problems go into food problems, particularly in, uh, in the parts of the world with less high standards of living than uh, here. And you end up with political instability and in Iraq and Lebanon's case you, you're throwing in the fact that the political instability also is violent as well. I was just going to add I, you know, we've been talking about United States and Europe and China but you know, the potential in the short to medium term for real political instability is probably not in any of those places. It's places that Helen mentioned or somewhere like Brazil I believe inflation in Brazil is now 11-12%. Brazil's had a terrible pandemic. Brazil is not a particularly politically stable place. I remember reading sort of two years ago predictions saying that the next place democracy will properly fall is Brazil. You know, if you want to start seeing old-fashioned <laughs> democracy backsliding, Brazil's the place to look. It's not all about the, the world's big economic centers if you want to see where the real trouble might be brewing. Did you have a question? Yeah. Um, I really liked what you were saying about um, sort of sensitising us to the lack of awareness of our solar panels or our f smartphones and, and all that stuff and, um, and wouldn't want to sort of try and un underestimate the complexity or, you know, the, the, the challenge. But the COP, COP26 has just passed, a bit of a waste of time really, but surely somehow, the, I can only speak for myself, but presumably if I'm feeling it, other people do, but to some extent, I'm basically saying like, I don't need China in my life and that all these people out there that are profiting from this, this setup that we've got are persuading me and convincing me and engineering me and conditioning me and to, to believe that I need all this stuff, but actually, and it would come with sacrifices and maybe I've, you know, I no longer have quite have the same smartphone or the same car or 
the same, you know, but we have the potential to recreate an idea of fulfilled lives and wonderful existences that we're not dependent on totalitarian regimes on the other side of the planet. Sometimes that somehow that's kind of missing in the economic. You know. and, and in a way, that's a variant on what I said, if you the triangle of Western demand, Chinese growth and coal, I said something's got to give. But it's well, why why not the Western demand side? Well, I mean, side? yeah, I mean, but but right now, if you want to if you want to buy a smartphone that doesn't necessarily rely on China to the same extent and does have visibility about where everything's coming from, you can. They're called Fairphone, and they are a fair bit more expensive and a bit slower than your kind of your typical phones. Where are they made? They're, I think they're primarily in Europe. I mean, but they they publish the full details of the supply chain, so you have transparency there but they don't sell anywhere near as many units as you know even a tiny fraction of, of of the big ones so that's the question is is can people adjust their demand you know because they feel the same way that you do and so far we're not seeing that on a mass scale but who knows who knows what happens in the next decade or so and Helen you did use the language of addiction to describe how we now feel about QE do you think it's more appropriate broadly for how we organize our economy? I actually think that there is some sense in which um, many people in Western democracies are becoming more reflective, both about issues about where the stuff that they get comes from, and to some extent their lifestyles. Uh, I think that um, and how much energy that they um, consume. And I, I don't think that Western demand is, I, I mean, if in your you know, triangle, I, I think Western demand is something that already is changing and I would expect it to continue to change, particularly actually as energy becomes, at least for a while, more expensive. I think the difficulty is that translating that into anything that politicians can do anything about is a lot harder. And so lots of people, or enough, many people might think and, and I think this is very understandable, I might say, look, what we need to get away from is like is, is a growth obsession with economic growth. We're addicted to economic growth, to go back to the language I was using earlier. And that is true, and, it, and it's problematic for part of the reasons that you've just said. But at the same time, nobody in Western democracy has got a clue how to do democratic politics without economic growth. Not a clue. Not least because the, the amount of money that states spend, including on things that people want to keep, like the NHS in this country, are bound up with increased revenues that are dependent upon growth. And that's where I think it becomes a lot harder again. So actually, I don't think what we as citizens in Western democracies want and what we demand is a static thing. I just think that we don't then go on and think about all the everything else that follows from that saying, okay, we'll adjust to a, a lower demand society. It's another way in which everything is connected. There is no good historical examples of democracies doing well in the absence of economic growth. But it slightly depends what we mean by democracy. The kinds of democracies we have are pretty much geared to an economic growth model along with electoral cycles and everything else. There are lots of different ways of doing politics that are still democratic, just there are lots of different ways of doing the way we organize our economies that aren't like we do it now. But these things are all connected and we have a tendency to think, well, we, we need to fix the consumer side. It all plays through politics. There are sort of feedback loops all the way through this system. It's not like you can take one discrete part of it and sort that and expect the politics to carry on. It won't. We've got to be, probably, we've got to be willing to think about changing all of it. So we've got a couple of questions at the front. Firstly, thank you very much for your conversation. Um, 
A global carbon tax has been seen to be an incredibly effective mechanism to effectively reflect the use of carbon in everyday consumer goods, yet it's only seen to be incredibly effective if it actually is truly global in scope. Um, so how would you um, envisage this mechanism being implemented? I don't have an answer in terms of this th to this question. All I would say is I, I think that the question of effectiveness in relation to such attacks can't be separated from the politics of it and I think this is where we're back to you know like what happened in the end of, of Glasgow and the fact that it is incredibly difficult to get the major powers not least obviously China uh, and the United States onto the, the same page about where the adjustment takes place. I think that part of the reason for that is historic because it, it just is reality that it is that the, the Western countries have been historically responsible for most of the emissions that have taken place. And anything that looks like anti-energy uh, and anti-energy growth is unacceptable in developing countries, including in uh, China's not a developing country as such, but it's not acceptable in China really either. But as we've been talking about, we're also all complicit in what goes on in China in particular, where uh, emissions are concerned. And you've got to then deal with the reality that the technological ways in which this problem might be dealt with are still some way in the future there, dependent on technology that doesn't yet exist and might and conceivably might not exist. And so the idea, I think, that there's anything remotely like a global political consensus about how to deal even just with this time frame problem, I just think that it's not there. Uh, and, and, and until there is some sense in which at least the bigger players are closer together in the way in which they see this playing out. I don't think there'll be anything like a, a global, global cooperation to deal with the problem, not in a meaningful sense. I was just going to say, I mean, you know, steel is one, is one useful way of looking at it. We, in this country, the amount of steel per capita just embedded in the environment you live in, if we split it up between everyone, is about maybe kind of 15 tonnes per person. The amount in China is about six tons per person, and the amount in, I think, many parts of Africa is kind of one to two tons per person or less. When you think about it, that still is the manifestation of civilization. It's your hospitals, it's your infrastructure, it's your roads, it's your cars, it's everything. And we still don't have a good way of making that steel without producing carbon. I mean, we're kind of getting there, but we're still not there. And so that question that Helen's alluding to, the distributional question about how you resolve this is at the heart of this. And we're nowhere near it feels. Where's, where's Africa, you know, where are African countries going to end up with steel? Where's China going to end up? Are they going to get to American, UK standards? Are they going to end there? Why is it our decision to make that? You know, it's tricky. One last question. Woman at the back there. Thank you. Um, I was just going to ask, I was struck by the language you were using of kind of crisis and that we're addicted. And you've spoken about what politicians, what central banks and what we as individuals could potentially do. But I was wondering as well if you could comment on the role of the media and commentary more generally. Oh, that's for me, isn't yes, it? Yes, <laughs> that is for you. But I don't know. I think we're being, just academics. I think we being part of it, I don't know if I'm in a position to, to say anything about that. I think that... And it's a frustration for me, as, as I'm sure it is for many people in the audience. There is definitely a tendency to kind of simplify. That's part of our job is to try and take very complicated issues and try and make them relatable to people. Um, and part of that involves simplifying, you know, IPCC reports are incredibly long. They are, you know, I don't know if you ever tried to download them, but they are crazy long. And part of our job is trying to explain that. And I, and, but I do think that along the way, 
it, we do occasionally kind of oversimplify. And I also think along the way there is a tendency, particularly with an issue like climate, and this is something I, I, you know, I would say that it's not just us, obviously I would say that. There's, there's a great passage in Factfulness, that book by Hans Rosling, about how Al Gore tries to persuade him to, to talk, do some of his charts on, on climate change. And one of the things that Al Gore says to him is, we need fear, we need to scare people. And that, that's difficult. I find that very difficult. I can understand why people feel this is such a big issue, you know, climate change in particular, that we need to galvanize action. But I don't agree with scaring people. But I do think that there's a lot of, a lot of commentary around climate and to some extent other things as well that, that does veer into that territory and I don't like it either. Uh, I think, you know, it would be nice if we could all talk in a slightly more analytical way about that, but also I'm a realist and I work in journalism, so I'm aware that communicating with people and getting headlines and so on, is, it doesn't necessarily always come down to data, unfortunately, for me. I would like for the media to be somewhat more level-headed about this, but it's a very, it's a very touchy sort of topic. I, I, the only thing I would say is that I think that it's illustrated by this conversation, the biggest challenge is to explain the way in which separate, particularly political questions are interconnected. And interconnectedness is at the heart of this. You know, you can't just say it's about this and ignore that. And it's incredibly difficult to tell the story that joins the dots. But luckily, that's what podcasts are for. But I mean, can I, can I just say, like, I would love to do a long piece for, for Sky, you know, if anyone's listening, so about kind of energy grids and cables and wires and why that's the core of everything. But how many of you would actually watch? Oh, probably this audience, everyone would watch it. Yeah, <laughs> fine. But that's, that's the struggle that we have. So every you day. can tell your bosses, look, <laughs> yeah. there are 100 people in Bristol. Representative sample. <laughs> okay. Um, on that note, it just remains for me to thank Ed and Helen and thank you for your excellent questions. And uh, please join me in giving them and yourselves a round of applause. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.